Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis, and I'm talking with Nick Flores, doctoral student at The Ohio State University. Nicolás Nick Flores is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University. Nick's research interests coheres around HIV-AIDS prevention work. He has conducted field work at a local community-based organization in Columbus, Ohio, aimed at LGBTQ holistic health. Nick teaches courses on literature, ethnicity, and U.S. Latina O experiences at Ohio State. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much for having me here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you come to Ohio? Was it hard to leave Texas? Yes, <laughs> indeed. So I am originally from Texas, mm -hmm. from a town so small that not even Texans know where I live. <laughs> uh, in the panhandle between Lubbock and Amarillo in a tiny 2,000-person town called Olton. And growing up there, it was very insulated and isolated from the world, really. Um, <clears throat> of course, I had exposure through TV, and I was growing up during the time of the, the Internet, and so mm -hmm. I had some exposure to the outside world through those mediums. But I knew that when I want that when I was going to go to gra uh, undergrad, mm -hmm. I needed to leave Texas. Mm -hmm. Like that was just on my mind, and I needed to leave. And so I graduated high school and got accepted to a small liberal arts institution, DePaul University mm -hmm. in Greencastle, Indiana. And this month actually marks my decade-long stint in the Midwest. <laughs> so. Uh, it has been difficult. Uh, the most difficult or most challenging part about living in the Midwest, for me at least, is the winter mm -hmm. uh, and the lack of sun. So <laughs> this summer I've made it a point to spend as much time as I can in the sun to get back to my natural brown state. Because <laughs> every time I go home, I get that the right. the wet joke, Estás right? Muy blanco. Muy blanco, yeah. <laughs> and so I get I get I get teased. And so I, I used to take it much more personally. Now I just recognize it as a, as an endearing thing that my family does. <laughs> <laughs> so so the plan is to eventually get back to the Southwest. To, to, te to Texas? Um, Texas is on the radar, mm -hmm. uh, the West Coast, mm -hmm. uh, and the Southwest in general. I'm not particularly picky. I just want to be back where there, are, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where there are browner and blacker pastures. <laughs> Great. I read in another interview about the spelling of your name, mm -hmm. N-I-C. In one of my classes for her heritage learners of Spanish, we talk about our names, the spelling and pronunciation of our names as an important part of who we are and also how people perceive us. Can you talk about your own experience? Certainly. Uh, my mother is my idol of mm -hmm. all sorts. I love her. Um, it's, her it's her unconditional love that has allowed me and enabled me to be where I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, So my name, Nicolás, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, doesn't have a K in it. Mm -hmm. And I was told, given this lesson at a very early age, around second grade, I think, when we're learning really how to, to write, mm -hmm. right? 
kindergarten, first, second grade, somewhere in there. And I was spelling my name and I see K on all of my assignments. And my mom, one day after school, pulls me aside and takes me to my dining, our dining room table where I did all my, my homework. Mm-hmm. And she sits me down and she asks me, you know, how I've been spelling my name on all my assignments. And I, you know, tell her and I see K. And she immediately says, okay, well, that's all well and good, Nick, but I want you to spell the name that I gave you. And as my young self, I'm a little confused mm-hmm. and I continue and I, you know, do as I'm told and write my full name out. And so she says, okay, Nick, now I want you to look at the name that I gave you, and I want to look at the name that you've been writing on all your homework assignments, and tell me in the name that I gave you where you see a K. Mm. And even more confused at the situation, I kind of look up and say, well, there's not one. And we had been told as part of American English grammar Mm. that the CK is the K sound. Mm -hmm. So in order to spell my name properly in a proper respectable American way it was to be spelled in ICK and my mom was like well you don't have a K in your name so you don't need to spell it that way and ever since then I've not spelled my name with a K when I go by Nick and that was one of the many lessons that she continuous that that she taught me and that she continues to teach me about uh, myself and who I am Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. great um so you you just mentioned that you moved uh, from Texas after high school, and you've been in the Midwest. And how different the landscape is, the population, right? Even though we have a growing Latino community in the Midwest, it's still we're still um, relatively low numbers. Certainly. There's not uh, a critical mass here. Right. Um, so can you share um, your path to higher education, especially as a Latino male, um, in Columbus, or in academia in general, like Indiana Certainly. and then yes. Ohio? So I often love attributing my successes to the women in my life. Uh, of course, they're men. They're, they're, always, they're always men. Right? <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm rolling my eyes. As, yeah, there's always men. <laughs> but the women in my life really are the people who have ensured that I've gotten here, uh, whether it be my mentors or teachers mm-hmm. in high school, my mother, or the undergrad advisors all that I had, my thesis committee advisors uh, as an undergrad, have all ensured that I've gotten here, right? And for whatever reason, they see something in me that I don't always see in myself Mm -hmm. and foster, cultivate, and encourage me to pursue Mm -hmm. this path, right? That's unfolding. Uh, It's a process. Um, And so I, I would say that I stuck out as a child and as a person in rural Texas who did the things that I was told, right? So I read books. Mm. I could put a sentence together, a coherent, (laughs) cogent sentence, Mm -hmm. uh, which unfortunately, and I think this has to do more with the state of higher education in general, uh, that I could do that is or rather public education, I should say, Um, you know, I stood out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't because I was smarter or because I was more intelligent by any means. It's because I put in effort. Mm -hmm. And so that effort was picked up by, again, a lot of women mentors uh, growing up who actively encouraged me to do everything. So I was involved with everything, right? I did the speech and the debate, and I did student government and 
was class president and president of all of the other organizations, right? And just because <laughs> for whatever reason, and I, you know, I can say mostly wholeheartedly now, like, sure, I've got a little charm, but that's only like 10% of it. Mm-hmm. Most of it is the assemblage of people around me who've mm-hmm. ensured me being mm-hmm. in this position. Uh, so I didn't really recognize the lack of diversity and diversity in the way that I'm talking about it now is actual diverse bodies, mm-hmm. right? Because there's certain sectors in the world that love to use diverse in this kind of r- expansive term to talk about ideas and these other ways to not actually talk about like black and brown people mm-hmm. or diverse bodies in the room. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about diversity, I often talk about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize that there was a lack of brown, Latino, Latina, Latinx people in higher education until I moved to the smaller liberal arts institution. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a lot of research as a, <laughs> as a high schooler. I was kind of lazy, in fact. So I applied to 12 schools, got into 11 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of them I applied for took the common application, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just the application that you fill out and that you can send to all of the institutions and they'll, they'll take it. Um, and because I was, I, I'm a low income. Mm-hmm. I come from a low income background. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my fees were waived, and so that also determined a lot of my choices mm-hmm. in picking the schools that I I chose. Uh, my family couldn't afford, right. you know, the forty five dollar application fee that some of the institutions took, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so what I found as I was applying was these. Uh, the concentration of liberal arts institutions that had taken an interest in me uh, and were sending me actively, you know, cards, emails, um, check this place out, we'll, we'll waive your fee, and if you get accepted, we'll pay for you to come out here and take a look at the institution, right? And in only ways that, like, private institutions can with right. their endowments and things. So mm-hmm. I took a tour of liberal arts institutions here in the Midwest, actually, um, one here in Ohio, Denison, and the other, DePaul, were the last kind of leg of my higher ed kind of tour of institutions. And I fell in love with DePaul. Uh, and the reason I fell in love with it is because they did such a good job of curating for me the experience that I thought that I would be having the rest of the four years there, which is to say they actively made sure that I saw the other black and brown kids mm. as well as the other low-income kids, mm-hmm. right? So my time there was very much inflected by my encounters with 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 that s- small population of the university, mm-hmm. which I thought was the whole university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and my naive young self um, was really drawn to that. Uh, turns out I was meant to be there, but I... I actively remember uh, those institutions that I visited were very much trying to curate those experiences mm-hmm. for me. And so when I finally made it to DePaul and made it to Indiana, um, I was shocked uh, in all senses of that term, culturally, psychically, mentally, spiritually <laughs> shocked. Because um, I knew that there was a wealth gap but I hadn't ever experienced it in such a way that was so stark, uh, that was so in your face with like old money wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going to going to school with kids whose dads were CEOs and owned businesses, and you know had their own like private jets and things, and would mm-hmm. often like plan these extravagant, you know, vacations, vacations and-, mm-hmm. and holidays. Um, 
And I was, you know, <laughs> pinching pennies to make it home every winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom was working three jobs, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I was working as an undergrad uh, through a scholarship that was paying me monthly, you know, like a couple hundred dollars a month, which for me was crazy. I was, I thought I was rich. <laughs> um, and so uh, being at that institution, a primarily white institution, uh, made me much more aware of who I was. Uh, and it made me, it kind of shocked me into identities, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the way that we often think about identity or identification is that we assume them or that to, to a degree we, we take ownership of them, right? So I am this or I am that. I am a queer Latino from rural Texas in higher education, right? Like all these markers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we often don't talk about is the way that sometimes some of us are kind of forced into these, these mm-hmm. categories through our social relationships. And I don't think it's an either or situation, but a yes and, mm-hmm. whereby you know, your social and cultural and political and historical context make up who you are uh, just as much as you are kind of an agent in that unfolding identification process. Um, and so for me, that was the case at DePaul, right? Mm-hmm. It was kind of give and take or it was a, it was a negotiation. It was a, a, it was a struggle mm-hmm. uh, to come to terms with who I was. Um, when I graduated, I was one of 86 self-identified Latino, Latinx people mm-hmm. at the institution of 2,280 people mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so my advisor, my undergrad advisor, was a Latina woman um, and from the Midwest, and she anthropologist, and she actively encouraged me to, and, and I majored in anthropology and women's studies, and so I devised a project at the end of an ethnography of kind of queer Latinos mm. at DePaul mm. and kind of capturing our narratives. Um, so I was much more interested in, you know, capturing the narrative, but also kind of making some suggestions to the institution about its lack of effort to these students and commitment to these students mm. um, writ large. And so, yeah, I, I interviewed like 13 of my friends, right, mm-hmm. because we all knew each other uh, <laughs> and just had conversations about what their time was like at DePaul and, and what it was like and the kind of struggles and resistances mm-hmm. as well as successes that we had there. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're in an, 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 an isolated institution like that, and mind you, we were, you know, 35 miles, about 35 miles west of Indianapolis. And so Greencastle itself maybe had 10,000, 12,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the relationship between DePaul and Greencastle was very contentious, mm. to say the least. Um, there's obvious tensions there. So, yeah, and then coming to graduate school, it was it, I'm at a primarily white institution, Ohio State, in, Ohio State University, as a primarily white institution. Still very much feel some of those struggles and resistances, mm-hmm. though I think I've come to myself become more comfortable with myself now mm-hmm. um, and it's a bit more uh, sort of I'm looking for it's not easier but it's certainly like I'm I'm a, I'm a little less braced mm-hmm. than I used to be mm-hmm. so um, how did this experiences and even growing up in Texas um, inform your interest to enter into this field of 
Latina or uh, queer studies. Um, both, I mean, you just mentioned a little bit about your undergraduate work, mm-hmm. but now your graduate work. Right. Mm-hmm. So, the, interestingly, what I did as an undergrad uh, informed directly my project that I had initially proposed coming to Ohio State. Mm. Uh, I did a program, again, aimed at low-income, underrepresented people in mm-hmm. higher education, uh, particularly in PhD fields, the Summer Research Opportunity Program. It, I believe it's a TRIO program. Right? So they, those are the folks that do Upward Bound mm-hmm. and and those types of programs. And so the reason I did that is because my undergrad advisor did it mm-hmm. at Michigan. And so she said, you need to do this because you need to go get a PhD. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, again, 21-year-old, I was like, I'll, I'll do whatever. <laughs> so I applied, got in, and... Uh, I had not, not even really thought of queer studies as a thing. Um, there was one class at DePaul taught by Kelly Hall, who is an amazing person and really introduced me to um, the world of queer studies and queer theory. And then I did that summer research opportunity program. And my advisor then is my advisor now, one of my co-advisors now. Mm-hmm. And, all, and she took it a step further. Marie Stevens introduced me to the world of queer Latino studies. Mm-hmm. And I was just floored. Oh, man. I mean, I'm still in shock and all that I get to have conversations uh, through my writing and in person these days with people who have really kind of charted the path for me. Um, and so when I came to Ohio State, I'd proposed this project that would look specifically at queer Latinos in the Midwest, specifically in the mid-Ohio region. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so eager and invested in thinking with and through like the struggles that exist in the Midwest, particularly for queer Latino folks. Um, and so we had a conversation earlier about there not being much of a critical mass of Latinos mm-hmm. in the Midwest, but particularly in places like Ohio, uh, which is also the case for queer Latinos, right? So if there's mm-hmm. a small population of Latinos, then there's even a even smaller, smaller. Po- population mm-hmm. for queer Latinos, right? So queer Latinas, Latinx people. So that project, unfortunately, didn't have much, have many legs to, to kind of walk on. And it wasn't because of my lack of trying or because there not being an interest there, uh, both on my end or the few people who I had gathered to maybe devise a project with. It was just that there wasn't a critical mass. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that it would be super ethical, really, to, to kind of invent something that maybe wasn't there. Um, so I I volunteer quite a bit and I always have, um, and I volunteered with a group at the time, which was called Aid Resource Center of Ohio and just did outreach work with them, uh, was a peer navigator for, uh, HIV prevention, Mm -hmm. which just meant that I, uh, would on occasion pass out condoms and talk about, you know, the benefits of using them Mm -hmm. as well as, um, getting people access to care. Mm -hmm. And that was just something that I did on my own um, and had not really thought about it as a project. Um, and then I do my candidacy exams and I you know, do all my fields. And in my department, our main field is social, cultural, and political theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my two subfields were ethnography and Latino-Latina studies. Mm-hmm. And all of that informs my work today, but it was my volunteer work with... Um, now, so Age Resource Center then, it's now called Equitas. They've done a, a mission and name change uh, for the past two years. 
And I began to start thinking, or I started thinking about HIV prevention and its effects in the, the marginal of the marginal mm-hmm. communities. Um, so folks who are low income, uh, black and brown folks, trans folks, and really starting to to form questions there that, that were that were there from the beginning. I just hadn't considered them as research. Right, right. So you're going into public health, racial and ethnic politics, and your research uh, uh, specifically tied or experienced by the LGBT community, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, that it's not, I mean, it's not quite a change, but it's a change from you know, going specifically into potentially uh, public health policy, right? Mm-hmm. Making changes, um, which to me is exciting because you get to do work that has an impact in our community, you know, like tangible even, right, that you can see these changes. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how you went into this, you know, with from your experience uh, working in the community, and then now your research. Right. So it's so funny. I There are many motivations to my research questions, which are, in some, what does it mean to live in the age of pharmaceutical preventative measures today, specifically for marginal communities? Mm-hmm. Um, we are going through what I would consider a huge shift in HIV prevention work globally, really, right? So pre-exposure prophylaxis, commonly known as PrEP, is a once-a-day pill that you can take that will, depending on the study that you cite, will ensure that you don't acquire HIV by up to 99%, right? 90 or 99%, right? And you had to adhere, you had to, you have to adhere to taking the regimen in order for it to be the most effective. Um, this is huge, right? Mm-hmm. So in addition to condoms, in addition to other HIV prevention strategies that one might take, um, this is, is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it is expensive. And, and it is. Mm-hmm. It, so, so, so part of what has unfolded in my research is it's ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. Gilead Sciences, which is a pharmaceutical company that developed and distributes the, the pill, has a patent over this drug combination. Truvada is the drug, but there's a, it's a double drug combination. Um, it was initially made for people living with HIV. Mm-hmm. So it was initially for people on, with Already HIV. With yeah, the with, mm-hmm. with, with the virus. And there were clinical trials in the late 2000s, uh, global trials, clinical trials, that showed that if you took this particular drug then it could act as a prophylaxis, right, mm-hmm. as a preventative uh, measure against HIV. And this is huge, right? Um, FDA finally approves it, and it becomes accessible to the U.S. market. Uh, it's anywhere from $1,300 to $1,600 a month for 30-day mm-hmm. pills. Um, what most people also don't know is that Gilead does provide a payment assistance or a program. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a payment assistance program. Uh, if you make so much or if you don't make so much, mm-hmm. it's basically covered for you. 
Um, but you wouldn't know that by just someone on the, on the street who doesn't even know that this pill exists, right? right? Um, and so th- all of this is happening, and in the back of my mind, at the f- not even in the back of my mind, at the forefront of my mind always is, well, how does this impact people who maybe need it the most, right? Mm-hmm. People who are, who are me as well as people who are my close friends, mm-hmm. queer, black and brown folks, maybe low-income folks, uh, people who haven't always had access to care or whose relationship to the medical community, the medical establishment in the United States mm-hmm. isn't one of, of peace or isn't mm-hmm. one of happiness, mm-hmm. right? Um, growing up, you know, we were, uh, was it chip? I can't remember what it was like the, the, the meta for, for children, mm-hmm. right. Had that insurance growing up. Um, but I remember at a point, I don't know, junior high getting sick and then going to the hospital and then recognizing that my mom had to pay so much out of pocket, mm-hmm. um, for this one you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't severely sick, but I was sick enough that I needed mm-hmm. to go to the doctor. Um, and all of the out-of-pocket costs. And remember thinking, man, I don't want to do this to my mom, right? So I would often be afraid of going to the doctor because of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, this also motivates and informs a lot of, like, people who I've interviewed, mm-hmm. right? They don't like going to the doctor because it's going to cost th- – right. the fear is that it's going to cost them – so much, right? Mm-hmm. And most Americans, I don't think, realize that one of the leading uh, kind of factors of debt in the United States is is from medical bills. Medical. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is a real issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, and many of us, I think, have encountered it, or many of us know someone who is is in debt because of medical bills mm-hmm. or medical expenses. Um, and it, it, it's perverse that Debt is used in this way mm-hmm. uh, against people, um, particularly black and brown people. Um, and we're not unaware of it. We're astutely aware of it mm-hmm. to the point of us not accessing care because of it, mm-hmm. right? Because of financial cost. In addition, I didn't have a physician growing up who was, who I could talk to about my experiences as a, as a practicing homosexual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as I, as I like to jokingly say, um, you know, about my issues, um, or issues I was having or being able to have an open and honest conversation about sexual practice. Um, and part of the reason why I w- did the field work about two years worth at Equitas is because they center those experiences in their, their care. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ensure that people who come, it's a sliding scale, right? So people pay what they can pay, with or without insurance. Um, you will not be turned away. Um, but you could have open and honest conversations about your sexual practices with your, with your, with your physician, mm-hmm. if it's a nurse practitioner or an MD, right? Anyone. So it's not something else that you have to uh, straddle, to right? Yeah. To the biases or exactly. assumptions or something, right. judgment. Exactly. M- maybe. Unfortunately, however, these tend to be very white spaces, right? And so <laughs> that's a whole other layer mm-hmm. that I think I, that, that I try to unpack and make sense of in my research, um, Right. So, so sure, like we can have these open and honest conversations uh, about our sexual practices, but there's a there's a there's a very th- 
fine line, right, that I think my research takes about, on the one hand, yes, gay people collectively, gay men in particular, have shared sexual experiences, but it is different if you're racially marked body. It is. And I don't want to reify these these two points, right, the us and them, um, but instead really want to think with both of them together, mm-hmm. right? which is, di- it is difficult. Um, but I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we must always, our questions should always be informed by the process of racialization and ethnic and sexual kind of proclivities. Right. right? Um, the the work that you're doing and you you have been doing for your thesis work, your dissertation work, I, I assume uh, some of this we will see on publications. But what what do you hope to accomplish with that? Is there something that who needs to read this. what you're yes what you're writing about? So I've been so several people. I really am interested and invested in making this kind of general public knowledge. Um, that that's a commitment I've made since I've been in higher education because I recognize that it's still such a gatekeeping institution. Um, I'm invested in making sure that my work is accessible to all who need it. Um, Right now, I've done this really interesting circuit of giving talks and lectures and training sessions to behavioral health specialists and nurse practitioners and people who are in, clinicians who are in the Mm -hmm. field. so I did one back in July of summer of this summer, 2018, and one of the conversations that the dissertation research has taken um, is a conversation that's been going on for about a decade now among kind of really progressive medical people, and that is this this conversation around structural competency, mm-hmm. right? So you asked about um, what are maybe some of the goals that the research has. Um, so for me, I'm invested in what I'm going to what, what I'm now starting to understand as part of my work as a part of this larger conversation around structural competency. Um, so just in short, cultural competency is a is a term that signals in the medical world physicians, clinicians, people who are serving people to be conscious of various cultural backgrounds, Mm -hmm. right? So cultural competency is like, you know, making sure that you in the room are sensitive and are competent to Mm -hmm. one's... Aware of the differences. Aware of the differences Mm -hmm. in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good, and I think that I'm not saying we should end that conversation. I am, however, suggesting... And and, and I'm suggesting, but many before me have already suggested this, Mm -hmm. and I'm merely kind of joining and elaborating on this conversation around structural competency. So if cultural competency is about the individual relationship in the room, structural competency forces the conversation to consider what are the factors that enable Mm -hmm. people to be in that room in the first place? Mm -hmm. Is it cost? Is it transportation? Is it public policy? Is it, um, is it, is it housing, right? Are people, are people who are incarcerated receiving care? Mm -hmm. Um, Structural competency forces this this conversation to consider, again, like structural systemic forces and institutions that safeguard uh, people with access and privilege into the medical field in particular, right? So Mm -hmm. structural competency would be 
thinking about how is it that it puts the onus of care back on the physicians, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you get the people who are not accessing your care in mm-hmm. your in your clinical site? Right. Um, and it's not a – people take it – it looks different everywhere. So I would argue that the, the site that I've been at or that I worked at for two years is very structurally competent. They are, are serving communities that need to be served. Mm-hmm. They're ensuring that people who need to get there get there mm. um, through bus passes. I know I, I interviewed people, Equitas staff, who would drive patients themselves to ensure mm. that they were getting mm. care, would would deliver medicine to them to make sure that they were receiving care or their, their, their medicine. Um, Nick, this – I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this, um, you know, new um, – I don't. I can't think of a, a word to to label this, but information about um, additional resources for communities that are not being served, right? And mm-hmm. and looking at, like you said, maybe structured things that that are that are blocking access mm-hmm. um, for our Latino community. For example, transportation is a big issue, right? Um, language translation services, translation, right? And so. Um, over the past, I want to say over the past two years, maybe three years, I hear more about, oh, yeah, we do this. And if we know that that person does not have transportation, we can provide transportation mm-hmm. for them. Um, but it seems to me that that's recent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just hearing about it. And, and, you know, and I have, you know, that I have students working in the community right. and they work in different fields. And some of them work with the um, with the health um you know, uh, clinics, mobile clinics and hospitals and things like that. Um, And it's just now that I'm hearing about this uh, provisions that are made for, um, you know, for the communities that don't have access. And again, transportation or medication. Cost. um, Cost, right. Um, Which I I think is important. And I'm glad that those things are, are, are there. But how are we actually making this information known, right? So you and I can say, oh, yeah, they provide transportation, but does the person know that right. they provide transportation? Does the person know that they might be they might qualify for free medication or mm-hmm. et cetera? I don't, I don't know if you've run into that. Yes. Also. So, so this, is, this is certainly, right, so the fully structurally competent thing to do would ensure that not just that those services are provided and being made available, but actively making sure that people are accessing them um, is kind of what I hear you saying, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, we, we do know these things exist, but the people who need, need them know them they, ex- mm-hmm. they exist. Um, in my research, I can say that while efforts are being made, excuse me, mm-hmm. that there's that they could do a lot more. Mm-hmm. And or the organization is doing work but in terms of communities, but in particular Latino, Latina communities, um, more effort needs to be made. Uh, and there, there are various kind of strategies and ways that that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which that I was involved with is, again, this kind of peer-to-peer network, right? So because I have peers who are Latino, Latina folks, queer folks in the community, I can have casually conversation. I can casually have conversation with them at the bar, mm-hmm. right, about... Um, about services that I've accessed mm-hmm. um, while simultaneously providing information <laughs> then, right? right. Um, yeah. Uh, 
So again, in Columbus, the the kind of main racial divide that exists here is primarily between black and white people, mm-hmm. right? African American, black, white people, um, white folks, and Aquitas has done a really good job, I think, of uh, of making themselves available to these communities. So, for instance, um, their location in the short north. They've been there for over a decade. And for those unaware of Columbus's changing landscape, the short north is a highly gentrified part mm-hmm. of, of Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, some might even call it post-gentrification, right? So housing is ridiculously expensive. Most of the homeless have been kind of pushed out. Most of the people who are low income have been pushed out of that area. Um, but when AIDS Resource Center was there, it was the beacon for folks who weren't otherwise accessing care. Mm. They opened up the King Lincoln District uh, location a a little over a year ago, and that's a primarily and historically black neighborhood. Um, So they they, they marked themselves there to make themselves available Mm -hmm. to that community. Um, Is is one small, it, it seems like a to me, it's not a small effort mm-hmm. to, to, to be mindful about where you place yourself, right? So it would be very different if if the, the main offices were, like, downtown, <laughs> right? Or, or in Powell, in right? Powell. Or, like, you know, New Albany, right? right. In, in the suburbs somewhere. Like, it would be it would be a much different story, I think. Um, but they, they've been strategic in their placement because they, they know that they're off of, like, major bus lines, mm-hmm. right? Um, they provide bus passes and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so for that community, I would say that they, for, for the black community that exists in Columbus, they're, they're, they make themselves very available, right? And their staff, um, they just brought in someone for their director of HIV, for prevention at Equitas, who I've known for a few years, who was in Columbus when I moved here about seven years ago, left, and then just recently came back because hired back to this position. And I was having a conversation with him a few months ago um, in his new role, and He's making and trying to make effort, like their staff, Equitas mm-hmm. staff, because it's, it's a primarily white staff too, mm-hmm. right? Um, making sure that they have some diversity there as well, mm-hmm. um, like in their actual like staff, people who are providing care. Mm-hmm. But that's hard because unfortunately we still live at a time where there are not a lot of black and brown physicians, right? And, mm-hmm. if, and if you are, you, you may not want to come to to a place like Columbus, right? Like you're probably New York or Midwest, Chicago or D.C. or the West Coast or the Southwest, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's it's an assembly. It's a it's a whole constellation of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, there's always room for improvement, right? I think um, translation or language is a huge, huge thing that I know that Equitas has has really been mindful of ensuring mm-hmm. that they have people who can translate to Spanish and Somali. Mm-hmm. Like, Somali. Somali. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, but, but again, always room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we really need, we need universal health care, honestly, like most of these issues I think could be mitigated or resolved if we took seriously the conversation around, uh, like around health care. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And access for all as a right, as a privilege, right? Mm-hmm. As a right, not a privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, you're also a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I want to know how you get to 
bring into the classroom when you are teaching literature, Latino studies, um, or whatever the subject is? Um, how do you get to bring your research into the classroom to have to really tackle mm -hmm. this real life um, situations for you know that you're that you're looking into? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, I feel like, um, especially when we teach literature. Um, that our students, you know, don't really see how this is impacting real communities. Mm -hmm. uh, but having, I imagine, the research that you're doing, um, you can, you have that opportunity to bring it and make it real and, and say, listen, this is, right. you know, this is what's happening. Um, I'm a, I love history and I always bring the historical context of the, you know, the, the, the literature piece that I'm, that I'm right or teaching. Um, to hopefully open up students' minds. And so having something like the work that you're doing, um, I can only imagine how much more that would be um, of an impact, you know, positive mm -hmm. impact for the students to see, to to see even like this is happening in our community, mm -hmm. right? So This is happening down the road, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. this is happening just beyond our little insulated bubble that we call OSU that mm -hmm. literally down the road there's a homeless issue right mm -hmm. that there's a that there's a an issue for people who are on methamphetamines mm -hmm. right in the midwest which has become a huge a huge deal because all of a sudden white folks are suffering from it but it's been decades that like black and brown communities have been suffering from mm -hmm. um a, an estranged relationship with with drugs mm -hmm. Teaching, I'm very mindful of 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 who I bring into that space. Um, I developed my pedagogical practice through modeling myself um, after people who I admired. Mm. So I always have in my mind Mona Bon, Angelica Sanieda, Marie Stevens, uh, Shannon, even Shannon Winopst, who I took a grad seminar with here. Um, are as all models of of pedagogy um, that brings life to the text, mm -hmm. um, whether it be literature, right? And I'm talking text in like a really broad sense, right? Mm -hmm. So I do, we, I, I definitely discuss the literature in my classrooms, but I also bring in ethnography mm -hmm. and bring in sociological accounts and bring in um, cultural studies accounts. Um, because I'm in an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary department, I have a lot more room to be able to do mm -hmm. that and, and kind of pick points of conversation and have the thread be this is like a this is a real life issue right mm -hmm. and how do we address it um i'm mindful of the amount of women women of color authors that i have um i i try to to center those experiences in in my my classroom um only because well for for a few reasons first it, it's important i think to have the voices of like the most marginal. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, keep, I, I said marginal of the marginal. I can't remember who said that. It was, was it a boy? Who was it? Like the marginal of the marginal. Um, so the people who you think are marginal, but then there's even mm -hmm. someone beyond that who's even more marginal, right? And women, women of color, low-income women, trans women, tend to be the most, the most disenfranchised group um, in all sectors. Um, so I'm mindful of making sure that I have that those voices are prominent, foregrounded in my in my classroom. Uh, 
I also have experimented a little bit with, not to the extent of like experiential learning, like having students go out into, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond the classroom, but trying to bring the world into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So inviting different speakers and Mm -hmm. and having various community members come in and share um, their activism in the community. Um, and then making those connections with my students, because um, that's—I mean—it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I have a—I have a nothing but the utmost respect, and I hope to one day, if I ever land a job at an institution that will allow <laughs> me to do this. Um, by the way, I'm on the market, so if anyone <laughs> listening to this, um, just let me know where you need to send my materials, and I will. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, one day we'll have the opportunity to build a classroom and a classroom environment that will allow this this experiential learning to happen mm-hmm. uh, the, the learning the learning with mm-hmm. the community to mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. Um, it is certainly a goal of mine um, but as a grad student it's it's difficult to kind of uh, make those pieces work for myself mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with all of the other pressures and all of the other uh, to w- with the rest of the to-do list that has to be done because mm-hmm. um, funding is running out. And so, I mean, you know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, I got to make sure I'm doing all this, making sure that I'm hitting all my marks because mm-hmm. I also need to graduate. <laughs> um, so being mindful of, of authors, making sure that students understand that people who have written these things are real life people. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm consistently shocked and I don't know why I'm shocked every time it happens. But students often assume that the text is devoid and is, evac- is, is evacuated of any kind of social, historical, mm-hmm. political context, right? So I'm always, I make it a point to give like a short biography of people that we read in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, this, this is someone whose research interests are this, or this is someone who like lived this life, mm-hmm. right? And this is why, this is what informed this writing. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying because of this, that this is why they wrote this, but this is important to consider as mm-hmm. we move through this text, where we move through this set of ideas, the, through, the sets of, through these sets of knowledge and these modalities of being in the world. Um, and I think that that's what students take away most from my classroom or from, from, my, from my class is that, that their actions have consequences. Every mm-hmm. action has a consequence. And um, there's uh, one of the professors who I teed for the first time uh, that I was in the classroom did this amazing framing de- did this amazing framing device um, that me and my roommate at the time kind of elaborated and took it a step further but he had the students all read this was like a large lecture it was like 200 plus people so I had two sections of 40 students but he had them read Ursula Le Guin's Those Who Walk Away from Momelas mm-hmm. which is a short short story in some that poses this ethical dilemma right so Omelas is this beautiful, wonderful place devoid of sadness, grief, misery. Um, But all of their happiness is contingent upon this child in a broom closet who is the kind of epitome of misery, Mm -hmm. right? And so everyone's happiness is dependent on this child's misery. And everyone knows that this child exists, right? And so the the title of the short story, Those Who Walk Away From Melis, is so you go through the whole story, right? You know, this is a, and again, Omelas is a place where you have drugs and there's orgies and there's happiness and festivals and everything, mm-hmm. right? But everyone knows that this child exists, um, and so those who know that the child exists um, and don't want to live in that world leave. But 
that's where this that's where the story ends. We don't know where they go, right? Mm-hmm. So therein lies the ethical kind of dilemma, the paradox is the kind of takeaway message is your happiness is always dependent on someone else's misery. Mm. And that's a really, really hard message to to kind of swallow or to to really make sense of, especially if you're a traditionally college-age student, right? right? To have someone tell you all of your happiness is dependent <laughs> upon someone else's misery, yeah. right? Your vacations to Antigua, mm-hmm. uh, your vacations to Jamaica, right, are predicated on Jamaican debt are predicated on like developing uh, the Southern world's debt, right? Or your access to lower cost food, food is right. dependent on exactly right, like know, all immigrant workers. Exactly, right? exactly, right? Mm-hmm. Like the food that we that we're eating at the Union is picked by hands in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Who are not who, who li- being who paid fairly? Are being paid fairly? Mm-hmm. Who have horrible work conditions, right? So, yeah, I mean. But it, as an excellent framing device, right? So, yeah. so again, that so that allows us for me that short story um, allows us to um, have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth Pavanelli, in her Economy's Abandonment, frames her frames that book, that ethnography that she does in Australia in um, that part of the world uh, through that device as well. But again, it, it's this ethical paradox that mm-hmm. is. That, that, that we must live with today. Right. Um, and it's what you choose to do that in part defines who you are. Who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, of, I often have students uh, when they work in the community, you know, they face, they, they face or they come, yeah, uh, to their privilege, right? And, they, and sometimes they struggle with it. And I said, mm-hmm. well, it's not, I mean, we all have privilege in one way or another, you know, I'm an immigrant, but I'm a citizen mm-hmm. and, and I'm bilingual, you know, I right. speak English, so I'm not, so that's a privilege, but it's what we do with that, that defines who we are. Like, what do we use it to help others, mm-hmm. to um, uh, demand change, you right. know, or do, do we sit comfort, comfortably, right. you know, on that, so... You know, and I would I would be curious to know from your perspective how you how you see yourself as part of this conversation of, around change, um, because I'm because I think that I'm still working through that as a young scholar, as a young person. Or, yeah, I mean, as a young person, but also just someone who's whose life has been nothing but education, right? So, um, yes, I have this this background, right? Like, so my I could give the story, right? Like my father's incarcerated, I low income, out, family deals with alcoholism. I've got, I've got that story, and right. I can tell that. Sto- I've told mm-hmm. that story, um, but at the end of the day, I'm pursuing my PhD. Mm-hmm. I am here. I have clothes. I have a roof over my head. I have running water. I have electricity. Um, but that internal struggle for me is always there, right? right? Like I come from here. But I'm doing this now. Mm-hmm. You're you're in the Ivy Leagues to to say right, or, some, yeah, or yeah, you're yeah. Uh, consider um, elite, you know, right. by having access to to higher education, by right. having a PhD, you know. But what brings me, what, how I balance that, I mm-hmm. guess, is that I and I have a similar. I mean, I have working class background. I'm first generation. I'm. You know, English is not my first language, and you can add to that, you know, a lot of other things. But um, what 
The balance for me is getting to work with the community. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I didn't see it before, and I didn't do much of it and during my graduate work because I was also married and mm-hmm. <laughs> had kids, and I was dealing with that, you know. Uh, but I think we have an opportunity and an obligation as, um, you know, people that have that have access or mm-hmm. that have, you know, completed um this degree or you're working, you know, I work at this institution, um, it's an obligation to sort of encourage those because we, we need the voices. We need our voices in, mm-hmm. in academia and in all uh, places, right, professional spaces where voices are not represented. So, so there is that, right, that we need, why not, right? <laughs> we need to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, for for others, for those that are that are following, you know, uh, but what what brings the most balance to my work and 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 my identity as a you know a woman in higher ed is my work mm-hmm. with the community, my work with the students, and working alongside with them um, and and tackling these issues and seeing them grow and 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 seeing them through the classes and through the things that we do in the classroom make a difference in mm-hmm. the community, but also be in change themselves. Mm-hmm. Most of my most of my students are um, non-Latino, um, are, um, I, most of my students are, are, I, are white, um, not all um, from upper class or, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, to see the change that they, that they go through um, and how, the people that they meet um, have a lasting positive impression on them. I get to see that, and I get to not sit sit in a ivy t- tower, mm-hmm. right? Um, ivory tower, tower, but um, but I get to work with them and in the community. Mm-hmm. So that's what, to me, that's what makes a difference. That's why I'm excited about the work that you're doing mm-hmm. because it's not just something that you're going to be in your office. Uh, riding along mm-hmm. and, you know, and then coming to class and doing your little lecture and mm-hmm. that's it. But it's, act- it's something that, especially if you make your research accessible to to all, not just to other academics mm-hmm. reading your work, it'll have this amazing impact and, you're, and you could see it and it will be tangible. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's the call um, to, to do that. Yeah. In my in my opinion, <laughs> I appreciate that because I, yeah, I d- right when you're in the when you're in the woods, you, it's hard to make sense of where you are, mm-hmm. and when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to think about the impact that you're having, mm-hmm. or that you've had, or that you that that it might have right that isn't going to maybe necessarily happen overnight, right. but will ha- but will happen. <clears throat> so, um, part of the structurally competent approach for me moving forward will be. Uh, in the research, but particularly for disenfranchised marginal communities, black and brown communities in Columbus, is really thinking about uh, what policies exist, right? Like I think that's a thing that Equitas too has done a really good job of is being really attuned to the public policy and laws and strictures and and things that directly impact funding or that directly impact uh, housing for people who they serve, Right. right? And that's and that's what uh, that that's one thing that I think I will be able to help with more once I'm 
officially finished once I minted PhD because <laughs> for whatever reason because we still live in a world where that right. where you that the social capital the the cultural capital that that carries does it there's weight behind it mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. whenever you have someone saying it from that end you 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 get the attention of people who right can mm-hmm. can make power moves or, right. or who or who hold power in a very kind of strict narrow sense mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah so well great uh, Nick, uh, thank you for being with us here in the studio today. This is a wonderful conversation that could probably last another two, three hours. <laughs> uh, but uh, good luck on the job search and your work. It's, I think it's so important um, for, for many. Um, and it's going to have a really big impact on uh, brown, black and brown communities in the Midwest, but beyond, um, I believe, I believe. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Fowlis. Um, as a distant admirer mm-hmm. of you, I um, can say that um, I told you before the interview that we I've had at least one student take your classes and has, not, has said nothing but praise um, of you and the work that y'all do over there. So um, thank you also for, for not only just having me here, but for the work that you do as well. Like, so thank much. you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.